0: Good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. He is risen. Yeah, I am totally with joy. I'm done with Lent this year. <laughs> and it was good. I think part of the reason I'm done with it is because I, because I, we entered into it, especially in the Vespers service in the Book of Ecclesiastes, which, man, I love that book. And also, yeah. So, but it's the Word of God. It has, it's, it's, uh, it's there for a reason. So yeah. So, if you do not know me, my name is Justin. Tim, you made it back. Um, Tim B. Um, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. And uh, our sermon series on the good news of God's hate is over, which I'm also glad that that's over. And uh, now we are here, uh, Resurrection Sunday, for uh, today's message. And today's message is about picking up the pieces. And this idea of picking up the pieces is, a, is an English phrase. And, you know, it means that, like, something has happened... Some kind of catastrophe or some kind of calamity. And then to say, like, I'm going to be picking up the pieces means that I'm going to try to, like, kind of reorientate myself so that I can go back to some form of normal, whatever that is. I'm going to pick up the pieces of my life. I'm going to pick up the pieces of the situation. And we're going to head over into something more normal. And I think every single one of us can kind of relate to that phrase of picking up the pieces, especially over the past 18 months. Uh, and the way COVID and uh, cultural division and everything else has just overtaken a lot of our time and energy and heart. And we as the people of God need to engage those things properly. Um, but there's also this this idea of like, hey, we need to pick up the pieces and move forward in the appropriate way. Um, a funny story about picking up the pieces that didn't go well. <laughs> Who here has heard of the 1970s story about the exploding whale? Raise your hand. Okay, so maybe only a quarter, good. If you want to watch the full story, the news report, go on Facebook on our, on our uh, Facebook page, Cornerstone's Facebook page, and it is absolutely ridiculous. Even the news reporting is so ridiculous in the way that they use phrases and language about blubber and uh, all kinds of stuff. It's crazy. So if you're not familiar with this story, in 1970, Florence, Oregon, there was a, a sperm whale that washed up on shore, and it was dead. And they were trying to figure out, hey, how do we move this 45-foot, 8-ton dead whale? Um, And so what they decided to do, one of the things the report says is that nobody wanted to cut it up, so what else do we do? Like, one of the reasons it didn't get taken care of is because nobody wanted to take the time to cut it up into little pieces and dispose of it properly. They're like, no, what should we do? I don't know, let's blow it up with dynamite. And so they got half a ton of dynamite, and here are the workers that are going and placing the dynamite by the whale carcass. And they're like, so what we're hoping is going to happen is that it's going to basically disintegrate this whale. And in disintegrating this whale, there's just going to be these really small pieces that are going to be everywhere. It'll blow, you know, it'll go towards the, um, the sea, the majority of it, the rest of it, the scavengers, the crabs, the, the birds, and everything else will come and we'll go ahead and, and clean it up, clean up this mess. Well, they did that. But like in the middle of everything, everybody's like, woo! Again, watch the video. Everybody's excited, like, "Yeah, this is work!" And it's funny because they got the—I think it was the Highway Commission—to come in and do this. So I don't know if the Highway Commission in Oregon just had extra dynamite around, and they were like, "We need to get rid of this," and blowing up a whale sounds like fun. So they did all that, but then things did not go the way that they thought (laughs) it was going to go. So screams of elation, of like, "Yeah!" kind of like a Fourth of July, woo, turned into like this horror movie where pieces of blubber big enough to smash the tops of cars, came and started going all over the place, and people were kind of running for their lives. Nobody was uh, hurt. Everybody got a little bit of blubber and and carcass on them and everything else. Uh, But it was a dangerous situation, and so these guys were like, well, that didn't work. (laughs) And this guy here just cracks me up. If you watch the video, uh, I don't know if it's because I feel like I would be him uh, in the the whole storyline. He's just like, huh, yeah. He's just so nonchalant about it. And so they had this idea of how to take care of a situation. And they tried to go and do this extreme idea, and it didn't work. Things didn't go as planned. And quite literally, what did they need to do? They needed to go and pick up the pieces, quite literally, all around the place. To, um, and so it made more work. They ended up burying the carcass and cleaning up the other stuff. But it did not happen. So today in our story, uh, we're going to be in John chapter 21 if you want to turn there, but today in our story, Jesus is picking up the pieces of his disciples. Jesus is picking up the pieces of his disciples, and specifically the apostle, the disciple Peter. And uh, so Peter had this plan in his head. I'm sure he did, because we all have these things that were called to something. Jesus was called to follow Jesus, and he kind of had this idea of how things were going to go. And if you track, you know, um, the life of Peter in the Gospels, we have what Joy read this morning in Luke 5 about how he, uh, you know, fell down and, and worshiped God and said, I am a sinful man, Lord. You know, and then Jesus is like, uh, follow me. He left everything to follow Jesus. And then you have these ups and downs. And Peter's like, like, Peter's like okay, I'm following which, this rabbi, and I think he's actually the Messiah. I think he's actually the son of God. And so this, these, uh, this imagination starts going on about what that's going to look like and what that's going to be. And so there are these highs and lows where Peter is someone who walked on water, uh, trusting in Jesus, but also slipped and started to sink. He casted out demons. He preached. He healed. Um, he was also called Satan by Jesus, not one of the high points. Um, he saw Jesus' glory in the transfiguration when Jesus revealed his glory with uh, Peter and James and John and, and uh God Almighty was saying, like, this is my beloved son. Uh, Listen to him. Uh, He asserted that he would never, ever reject or abandon Jesus. Like, all these other jokers, God, that you called might end up abandoning. But not me. Not me. And then, what ends up happening is that Peter ends up rejecting Jesus when things get tough, when Jesus is headed to the cross. And he rejects him, not once, not twice, but three times. And so, this is after the resurrection now. Jesus is risen, hallelujah, and now he's coming to pick up the pieces of his disciples, to remind them of who they are, to remind them of who he is, and to remind them of what they are called to do and to be. So this idea of picking up the pieces means some kind of restoration. So here's the main takeaway, along with four application points, if you're, if you're into that kind of stuff, that we'll be revisiting. So the main thing is that the resurrected Lord today, just as he did back then, is restoring the calling, meaning the purpose, and the character, meaning the integrity of his followers. The key key verb there is, is. Did he do that? Was he doing that in this story? Absolutely. But we need to put ourselves into the story and also receive from the Spirit today that there's things in each of our lives that God is looking to pick up the pieces There's things in our lives that God is looking to restore as far as what he has called us to and the ways in which we do those things, which I would say is is a type of character. Um, So the four application points today would be, you know, each disciple's voice is unique and you should submit yours to the kingdom. That a healthy spiritual diet involves wine and bread and fish, and I'm not trying to be trendy and do the latest fad of food. I mean this in a spiritual way. That a healthy spiritual diet for us Christians, uh, uh, metaphorically, uh, is wine and bread and fish. Third, comparison with one another, or with others, uh, corrupts complexion, or you can just say character. Um, Comparison corrupts character. I use the word complexion for a reason which we'll get into, but if that word seems a little bit weird, just think of it as character, as a viewpoint, as your attitude, as your convictions. Comparing and uh, yourself to one another, to each other, uh, corrupts that. And then the question I want you to leave today with personally, as we listen to the story of God, is that do you love Jesus more than blank? And if you do, what is he calling you to do? Then what? Do you love Jesus more than, and fill in the blank, what is something that you really love? What is something that brings you significance? What is something um, that you might even be called by God to do, but do you love Jesus more than that thing? And if so, what could he possibly be calling you to do today or now in this season of life? Then what are you to do? Great. So before we get into that, so picking up the pieces, um, we're going to take uh, a little bit of time and geek out on the Bible a little bit, which some of you might find this, like, boring or annoying. I think it's fascinating. Um, so in, the, in John 21, Peter and Jesus are the main relationship in view. However, there's another important person, another important voice that is there, and that's the disciple that Jesus loved. The disciple that Jesus loved. I've taught many, many years ago about, um, about uh, the disciple that Jesus loved. Uh, I've come over the past three years to reconsider who that disciple actually might be. And so I'm going to present a little bit of evidence for that, and I don't want us to get wrapped up in this, but it is playing into the, the point of our story today, especially the unique voice that we each have and how me saying something and, say, Peter saying the exact same thing can carry a different tone and a different texture the, to the world around us. And how all of those different tones and textures are important as the body of Christ to submit to the health of the community, to the glorification of God. So, I... I who, who have you been told before has been the, the disciple that Jesus loved? Even by me. Who the, who's the normal? John. John the Apostle. Yeah. So this is a matter of, you know, who, the, who who did Jesus love more? Jesus loved everybody. But in the text, it specifically says this disciple that, that Jesus loved. And so uh, John is one of them. I'm going to offer to you that maybe Lazarus is a good candidate for this. And I'll let you know why in a minute. But... This uh, idea of the disciple that Jesus loved appears uh, five or six times in the book of John, the book of John only. It's not in any of the other uh, gospels. Uh, he was somebody that reclined next to Jesus at the Last Supper, at the last meal. So that brings in the question well, if you're saying it's Lazarus, was there more than just the twelve at the Last Supper? That's a good question. I'm glad you're thinking about that. Um, another place the disciple whom Jesus loved appears is that when Jesus is. Being crucified on the cross, if you read the uh, Good Friday devotional, this idea that Jesus is being crucified and basically puts his mother Mary under the care of the disciple that Jesus loved. That's the second place that the disciple of Jesus loved appears. The disciple that Jesus loved also appears in John 20, during one of the empty tomb stories where Mary comes and says, they've took, taken his body because she doesn't know what's going on. They didn't take his body. He rose from the dead. Hallelujah. And Peter and and, uh, the apostle that Jesus loved, which is a really long phrase to say, by the way, uh, ran to the tomb. And which one made it first? Was it Peter or the other one? The other one. And then uh, Peter caught up and Peter actually went into it. And then in John 21, our text for today, there's multiple instances where uh, the disciple that Jesus loved uh, experienced the resurrected Lord. Uh, There was this question about his mortality, not his morality, his mortality about when's this guy gonna die um, and then there was also the, this uh, this notion that he made a significant contribution to the book of John one way or another he made a significant contribution to the book of John so like everybody most people here said that the traditional favorite is John the Apostle historically and with church tradition this is where we get the notion that it was John the Apostle uh, son of Zebedee, his brother was James, part of the inner circle of Jesus' crew, Peter, James, and John. That was the disciple that Jesus loved. Uh, we get this from early church <clears throat> history, this church historian, uh, Eusebius, <clears throat> excuse me, that in the fourth century <clears throat> found a text from this other Christian, uh, early uh, Christian father that was Polycarp, and he thought that he was making the link between... Um, Uh, the disciple that Jesus loved, and the Apostle John. Are multiple people getting me water right now? (laughs) Thank you. Um, And so church history, this is, if you read commentaries, 80% of them will say, and everybody's clear, like, it is not definitive, because it doesn't say through the text definitively who it is. So there is curiosity and exploration that is within the realms of orthodoxy in this. I'm not trying to be weird or heretical or anything. Um, and then one of the biggest things is that at the end of John, the last couple verses, it says this disciple that Jesus loved was the one that testified and wrote these things. Now the question is, did he write all of it? Was he a contributor? Because it was definitely a community under John that brought it together. Thank you, Barry. I want to see how many cups of water I got. Four? That'd be awesome. <laughs> But the traditional favorite is the Apostle John. If you're a teacher and you've ever taught this, and you're like, Justin's either a heretic or I'm a heretic for teaching this differently, don't feel that way. The the truth of the risen Lord does not change based off of who the beloved disciple is. Okay? So don't get hung up on that. I do think it's interesting to explore and study and to geek out a little bit. So then the second option, there's two and three, um, is Lazarus. I know, I'm going to need a bathroom right now. (laughs) The other person is Lazarus. And this is considered, or I'm labeling it, as the textual favorite. The textual favorite. And why is that? The disciple that Jesus loved only appears in which gospel? John. And that phrase, the disciple that Jesus loves, only appears after John 11. What happens in John 11? Lazarus is resurrected... By Jesus. And in chapter 11 of John, as we're talking about the story of Lazarus, it mentions three different times how um, Jesus had a love for Lazarus. The one that you love, Jesus, is sick. It talks about how Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who were all related, were loved distinctly by Jesus. Again, Jesus loves everyone, but it's calling attention to this. And then one of the only times Jesus weeps in scripture is during this story. And everybody's like, oh, see how much Jesus loved Lazarus. And so there's this idea, there's this notion, there's evidence that points towards, well, now from John 11 onward, this disciple Lazarus is not going to be called Lazarus for different reasons, which I'm not going to get into, but it's going to be the disciple that Jesus loved. The disciple that Jesus loved. So how does that plan to, this evidence up here as we you know, plan to this? Um, so were there more than 12 people at the Passover meal? That is very unclear. We know that the 12 were there, right? But especially in Jewish culture and Passover meals, it probably would have been bigger than that. To me, as I like, look over stuff, this is probably the biggest indicator for me if it wouldn't be Lazarus. If there was definitive proof that it was only the 12 that were there, I'd be like, then it can't be Lazarus because it is very clear that uh, the disciple that Jesus loved was next to and reclined next to Jesus. This makes sense with the Lazarus uh, hypothesis that, uh, you know, uh, hey, Jesus is calling in a favor. Remember that time I, I, uh, wrote, you, know, you came back from the dead and that was because of me? Uh, I was wondering if you could take care of my mom now. Um, and then, but there was this love that was between them, and maybe Mary entered into with the other Mary and the Martha and Lazarus and entered into her home. to to be cared for and to care for one another. Saul, the empty tomb, from the idea of uh, narrative play, I think this is the strongest in my opinion, because of the fact that you have Lazarus and Peter, I'm just going to say that's who it is now, running to the empty tomb, and the other disciple, who is Lazarus, gets there first. But does he enter into it? He doesn't. He stops outside of the tomb and sees the grave clothes, and seize the linen. As I put myself in that, if it is Lazarus, in that place, I get there, and what's going to rush over me at this point? Emotion? PTSD? Seriously, you were dead and you were buried in something like this for four days. And then you run to this, you know, you're kind of excited, or like, maybe you're not even excited because you don't even know if he's resurrected or stolen, and you get there, but then as soon as you see it, And the linen, the grave clothes, and the tomb, it just hits you. And there's just like this that pushes you back. Peter goes in, notices the grave clothes and everything. Uh, I believe the disciple that Jesus loved does then enter and sees that. But so that's very plausible. And then here, um, the idea of, uh, uh, in our text, there's two other disciples that are not named. That could be one of those could be Lazarus. And question about uh, mortality. If uh, Jesus rose me from the dead... There might be a question like, is Justin ever going to die? Because Naomi and I semi-joke around the idea that it's kind of mean that Lazarus has to die twice. Like there was this cool glory moment, but he's going to have to die twice. And so maybe the, uh, the apostles in the community were like, so what's going to actually happen to Lazarus? Is he going to be alive until Jesus comes back? Or what's happening? And then made a significant contribution to the Gospel of John uh, you can look at this later, but it almost seems like the Gospel of John, in one version of it, could have ended at the end of John 20. There's this little thing about um, all this, about uh, it's almost like an ending block, that it could have just stopped there, and John 21 could not have been there, and it seems like it would have kind of come to a conclusion. But then there's this whole other chapter. So the question is when it says at the end of John 21, the beloved disciple, we know him. And he testifies about these things. Is it saying he testifies about the whole book of John? Or is it just testifying about this latest storyline that was part of it? And we don't know that. We have to be humble and be like, there's certain things we don't know. And again, this is just geeking out, kind of looking at that uh, curiously. Um, Don't get wrapped up in that. But for our sake today, I'm just going to assume that it was Lazarus that was there with the disciples. And he is the one that is the disciple that Jesus loved. If you have any problems with that, talk to me next week. Don't talk to me after the service. And we can, uh, I can point you to different resources that I could probably find online if you want to dig into that a little bit more. So, everybody with me? Still here? Okay. That wasn't the story of today. <laughs> that was a little side trail about that. So to the story of today is from John 21. So if you want to take your Bibles and open up to John 21, I will be reading out of the ESV I will read a portion of the text, make a couple notes, a couple application points, and then go to the rest of the text. John chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is also the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. And that word revealed has the connotation of a divine appearance. Like it's not just like this, eh, kind of revealed. It's like something is really going on here. And God is trying to speak through this. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee. sons of Zebedee were James and John, John the Apostle, John the Apostle, Uh, and two others of his disciples were together. So then we have these two unnamed disciples. And Jesus had more than the 12 disciples. We know at times he sent out 70 of his followers. At other times there was mention of both men and women, people that were not part of the 12, that were his disciples. So while we're used to focusing on the 12 disciples, and rightfully so, Jesus had more followers than just the 12. Simon Peter said to them, so this is after... uh, Simon has seen the, the empty tomb. This is after he betrayed Jesus and, and uh, the crow, um, not the crow, the rooster crowed three times um, because of his denial and all of this other stuff that he's back to what he was doing before. He says, Peter says, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. So Simon has this natural leadership ability, at least within this group. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, if you're following along, this is very similar to what story? To Luke 5, that Joy read for communion today. And so there's this replay, in part, of what's going on, of this calling, of this scenario that is happening. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So they were off about 100 yards. They saw somebody walking on the shore. They didn't know it was him. Jesus said to them, hey, kids, did you catch any fish? Children, do you have any fish? And they answered no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And I'm sure these guys who have been out working all night, it's like, oh, good, we have this old miser over here trying to tell us that he knows how to do our job better than we know how to do our job. We'll honor that. We'll do that. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Because of the quantity of fish. So um, that, that side there where it says cast the net on the right side, they were probably inward facing. So if you're the shore and I'm the disciples, they were trying to fish with the net this way, to try to catch the fish that was in this section of the water. But Jesus says, go to the other side. Go to the outer side where there is so much more to be able to gather in. And it was the common practice to gather between the shore and the boat. But Jesus says, turn to the right side, turn to the other side, and see what you get. And that's important because just about everything that's mentioned here has something to do with mission. and has something to do with the gathering in of the people, of going and being fishers of men and women, fishers of people. And so it can't be just turned this way anymore. Go this way go out. Uh, Number seven, or verse seven. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. He would have had some kind of clothing on, but might say in your translation, naked. He wasn't just flapping in the wind out there. He had some kind of stuff over him. It was just his outer garment was there, so it's not anything weird. He put on his outer garment. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. So a hundred yards in clothing is not a simple swimming distance. Has anybody done that recently? No? That would have been effort. There was excitement in Peter's voice. There was excitement in Peter's mind that this could be the Lord. As these things are happening, the disciple that Jesus loved picked up on it. He's like, wait a minute. This has happened before. All these fish are coming. We didn't catch fish at all. Now these fish are coming. Wait a minute. And he notices that it's God. He notices that it's Jesus. And he says to Peter, it is the Lord. And Peter's excited When they got out of the land, they saw a charcoal fire, verse 9. And it was in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. What does 153 mean? Again, this is is curious. It doesn't say, so don't get wrapped up in it. But it could just be like, that was a lot of fish. We want to count to be like, hey, go see how many points is on that buck, right? It's this huge thing. And so they go and they count the number of fish, and it's 153 fish. That's just what it is. The Gospel of John also has a lot of symbolic numbers in it, and it's possible because of ancient Near Eastern and ancient world uh, mathematics that this could be what is called a triangular number. I'm not going to get into that. But what it means is that when you add 1 plus 2, you get 3 and then you do 1 plus 2 plus 3, and you get the next number. And then you go all the way up through that. This is called a triangular number. So what is the base of the triangular number of 153? Anybody quick math? 17. (laughs) It's 17. And so there's this possible symbolic number of 17 that refers to, in the book of Ezekiel, when it talks about uh, men fishing to uh, the nations of the world, And in Acts chapter 2, when it talks about 17, the 17 nations that are mentioned that was part of the known world at that time. So there's also this possible uh, symbolism here that like, hey guys, are you picking up on this? This is a large catch, but I'm saying something more than I'm just providing you a fortune of fish. There's something else going on here that means that it's more than just this. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. The net was not torn. The in-gathering happened and things did not break. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what can we take from this as we think about the disciples in this section of the text, and we have another half chapter, so I will try to make it quick. So again, we're looking at Jesus picking up the pieces of both character and calling, calling your designated purpose, uh, not to be like so minute, but just like, what has God called you to? In general, God has called all of us, every single one of us, to love Him and to love others. That's the general calling. But are there other ways? How do we enact that? It's part of your calling. And then also the character, how do you go about with your calling? So um, we could have Sammy and me that have the same calling, that we have the same calling in the kingdom to do this thing. But Sammy's character is a lot better than Justin's character. And so when he goes and he does his calling, he is going to be uh, full of integrity. He's going to be full of conviction. And me, Justin, if I'm not watching out for it, if my character, if my integrity is slighted, that is going to affect how the calling happens and how I do the calling. And I could be more successful than Sammy at my calling, and yet actually be not as successful because of the character within me is totally off. And so while outwardly, oh, Justin is doing this or that or that other thing, I could be a dead grave inside. But Sammy, as a man of integrity and of conviction, a man of good standing, he could be doing the smallest thing in his calling, and yet is the most fruitful because his character and calling aren't divorced from one another. So as we think about character and calling, Jesus restoring this to his disciples, let's talk about um, calling here. So one, each of the disciples' voice is unique, and you should submit yours to the kingdom. It doesn't overly matter if the disciple that Jesus loved was Lazarus or John. What matters is that it is the Lord. That it was that person that said, it is the Lord. And so, like I said before, each of us have, could say the exact same thing. So let's take this, it is the Lord. It's the Apostle John saying, it is the Lord. That's going to carry some kind of different history. That's going to carry some kind of different baggage even. That's going to carry, I saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was the one that called me to come out of my father's business and to follow him. Or Lazarus, it is the Lord. He's the one that loves me. I know him. I, I know his figure. I know his voice. He's the one that raised me from the dead. The person of Jesus is the same, but the texture and the tone of saying it is the Lord changes slightly. And we need that texture and tone in the church. Not just some guy or woman every single week talking with the same texture and tone from up here. But of us talking to one another and encouraging one another and exhorting one another and comforting one another. This past week, Naomi and I got in a, not in a fight, it wasn't a fight, it was more like a, oh, this part of our story. So one of the things that um, I, I wrestle with is comparison uh, in certain aspects with other people. Um, and uh, this week, Naomi had a, had a, had a a uh, met with somebody, and uh, I was like, so how was, your, how was your meeting? And she was going into it, and I was like, oh, good, good, good. And then she was like, yeah, and... And then, and then my counselor told me this thing. And I just started looking at her. And it was like, th- this thing that she's telling me was like the first time she's ever heard it. First time she's ever heard it. And I just keep looking at her like, and she's like, why are you looking at me so weird? I have said that a dozen times in front of you, to you before. And so I'm like, oh, great. And we'll get to comparison in a minute. Another thing that I say the exact same thing somebody else says I don't get listened to. Well, let's flip that in a redemptive way. That the fact of is that Naomi heard that this time, and that was the really important thing. And sometimes in our lives, we need to hear the exact same thing with different tone and texture towards us. And let's not get wrapped up of a, whose word's more authoritative, or who's the cooler, oh, why did you say that? Because I did that. <laughs> but the fact that she heard it, and it was good, And so you might be thinking in your life now, like, um, there could be a situation where, like, I've said this over and over again, and it could be true. I'm not saying for you not to say it over and over again, but you, in your ministry in the world, also need other brothers and sisters to come alongside and say the exact same thing, maybe exactly the same way or with a different tone and texture, and then it clicks. That there's not as much history with Naomi's counselor and with her as there is with me and Naomi. That she could hear it anew. And that's what's important. And so if you ever are tempted to just think, you know, in your calling, like, well, my voice doesn't matter. It does matter. And you need to speak the word in love that the Lord has given you. And I use this word, submit. Submit yours. Because it can also be easy to go like, okay, I'm going to tell everybody exactly what I think about them. That. But that's not how it is in the kingdom of God. We're actually submitting our word to God's word. And then God's word kind of turns that over and then we give it to somebody else. In encouragement, and exhortation, in comfort. So your voice matters. As Jesus is restoring uh, the call of the people, know that for us too, that your voice is unique and your voice matters. Second thing, healthy spiritual diet involves wine and bread. Wine and bread is part of what? Or juice, part of what? Communion. And over and over again, not every single time, but enough to be a pattern, The idea of fish and bread is connected with mission. And so if we as followers of Jesus are getting the wine and the bread, the communion, but not the bread and the fish, something is off. Or if we are getting bread and all the, what's in fish, fatty acids, omega-5s or whatever, if we're getting all of that and we're all about mission, great, but we're still missing something if we're not communing with the Lord. And rather than there being this... uh, Divorce between communion and commission, those things are meant to be together. And if, we're, if, if you're not living today, or to- towards God in a way that's thinking outside of yourself, or if you're here today not considering the fact of how Jesus draws you into intimacy with him and others, if those two things aren't together, then there's something just off, something we need to learn, something we need to grow in as followers of Jesus. Right? The communion uh, aspect is about who is at the table. The mission aspect is about who's not at the table. And how do we merge those two things together? That is our calling as Christians. How that gets worked out, there's a variety of ways for that. So in what small way is Jesus looking to resurrect your calling? Maybe in the past 18 months, you were really excited, you felt that Jesus was calling you something, and then COVID hit. Maybe your ministry has uh, really boomed And when I say ministry, I don't necessarily mean like you have to be part of some kind of 501c3 or religious organization or anything like that. It simply means how are you loving God and loving others in the way God has called you to be. Whether it's at your 9-to-5 job, whether uh, it could be at another organization, whether it's in your relationships. How is Jesus looking to resurrect that calling in you? How is he looking to bring that back uh, to life during this next season? So let's move on to the next section, which is about character. Pick up in John 21, verse 15. Everybody still here? I know. Go like this if you get sleepy. Or have somebody next to you punch you in the face. That that helps me stay awake. Jesus and Peter. John 21, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, which would have been a very awkward breakfast. (laughs) What have you guys been up to? What have you been up to? Um, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Well, then feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said it to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And this is obviously a a restoration of Peter denying Jesus three times. Saying, no, I don't, I don't know him. I don't love him. No, him? No, you have, you're mistaken. That's, that was somebody else. I, I wasn't with him. No, I absolutely do not know who he is. And then, and then, and then he left. And he cried when, at the third time when he denied Jesus. So this is like a restoration. This is a, uh, uh, Jesus holding Peter accountable. Really. Jesus said to him, then feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And according to church tradition, Peter was crucified. According to church tradition, he asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't want to be uh, on the same playing field as Jesus. And I don't even—I was trying to find out, I didn't want to go down that rabbit hole, can you even crucify somebody upside down? Um, so I, I want to look into that more. But that's what church tradition says when it talks about, we know that he died somehow by the stretching out of his arms. He was led somewhere else. Jesus is saying, you weren't willing to die with me when I was crucified. And I knew that was going to happen. But I'm letting you know now that in the future, if you continue to follow me, this will happen. And so Jesus is setting up uh, the reality, the cost of following him. And after saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at the table close to him, and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw that disciple, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this guy? What about this man? Uh, So if this is John, the apostle John, John uh, lived an awfully long time. He was probably, according to church tradition, 80 or 90 years old. And so it could have been like, oh, was was John ever going to die? But then also, if it was Lazarus, same thing. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And now there's this question, is this guy ever going to die? So Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers and sisters that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So there also seems to be, like, within the text, a little bit of clearing up that nobody ever said the, beloved, the disciple that Jesus loved was going to die. Just said, what is that to you? Don't worry about that. There's other things to think about. Verse 24. This, the disciple that Jesus loved, is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So how do we uh, overlay this with us now as far as character, as far as uh, the devotion within that we have towards, towards things? Comparison corrupts character or complexion. The idea of complexion, again, is conviction. The word complexion means the act of embracing. The act of embracing. And comparison corrupts how we embrace our calling. It really makes us um, think more about ourselves rather than the Lord, or makes us think more about ourselves than about what the the mission actually is. And so here we see this with Peter is given uh, some instructions. And then he kind of turns the, the story a little bit and starts talking about the disciple that Jesus loved. Well, what about him? And oftentimes we can do that. We can be thinking about what others are doing or aren't doing right. We know about, Yeah, well, I know that about me, but what about him? Or what about her? Or man, what about them? I wish I was like them. And there's a difference between comparison and imitating. We're actually called in Scripture to imitate other brothers and sisters in Christ as we grow. But that's not the same as comparison. You know, when we are called to imitate these things, there is this imitation of character. That Mark, I want to imitate Mark Niesel's character and his steadfastness. I don't want to be comparing what I'm called to to what he's called to. But I want to learn and glean from Mark as he is a man of character and of integrity. So that kind of imitation is good. But this idea of comparison within the church, both on an individual level and on comparing one church to another, has to stop. Because it just ends up being uh, this uh, corrupt thing of jealousy or uh, bitterness or woe is me or I'm so much better than them. And so, character or uh, comparison corrupts your character. So, we shouldn't be asking, what about him? What about her? What about that person? And then, uh, finally, lastly, do you love Jesus more than blank? If so, then what is he calling you to? Just like Jesus said to Peter over and over again, do you love me? The first time he says is, do you love me more than these? What are these? Maybe these are the aspect of my work, my job that I have always done. Peter knew how to fish, even if he didn't catch anything that night. He knew how to fish. Do you love me more than your job? Of the thing that brings you comfort, the thing that you know? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these fish that brought you a fortune? That would have been 500 pounds of fish. They're used to getting about a dozen of fish a day. And so there's this mini fortune. Do you love me more than this fortune, this blessing, this uh, um, this miracle that I provided for you? And do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than the other disciples? Because Jesus wants to put into Peter this fact that the way that you're going to love your brothers and sisters the best, is by loving me first. And if you're putting these in front of me, that might, be, you might, you know, that might be a good thought or a good idea. It's not going to turn out well. But if you put me first in all things, then these things will be added to you. So what is Jesus calling to, do to you today? Do you love Jesus more than these? What is your these? And if the answer is yes, if the answer is no, we work through that in grace. If the answer is yes, then what is God calling us to do? What is God calling us to do? Uh, Worship team, you guys can come back up so we can do a closing worship song. Make, uh, so in uh, Galatians chapter 6, Eugene Peterson puts the text in this way. He says, make a careful exploration of who you are and the work that you have been given. So explore who you are and the work that has been given. And then sink yourself into that. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself with others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. That is part of the call that is being called to us today. Where Jesus is picking up the pieces. And again, it's not so much a matter of uh, who said it is the Lord. The fact is that Jesus is risen, and that is the thing that matters the most. And now as he is alive, just as he was restoring his disciples back then, he continues to restore his disciples today. And so how is he trying to restore your character and calling in light of his resurrection? There was more things that Jesus was calling Peter to in light of the resurrection, in light of giving of the Holy Spirit. And this doesn't need to bog us down. This doesn't need to make us go on a 22-day retreat that I have to find the distinct meaning of our life. It just means we have to follow the Lord. And so everything that Jesus has done for us still comes back to us as this question, or just this commandment. Will you follow me? Today, hear that. Jesus is saying to you, follow me. Not follow Mark, not follow Justin, not follow Sammy. Follow me, Cornerstone. And then together as disciples, we each aid our voice. We lend our voice to the community. And Jesus continues to pick up the pieces. It was great when Olivia talked about how those two things of life and death are on the same picture. We're not pretending that as Jesus is picking up the pieces in our lives, that those bad things didn't happen. That we failed. We sinned. We did all of this stuff. Or there was just circumstances that ended up happening, that we uh, couldn't control. But Jesus is restoring that. The resurrected Lord is restoring the calling and character of his followers. He is picking up the broken pieces of humanity that are shattered by sin, fear, shame, disobedience, circumstance. And he is creating new life out of them. Sometimes things need to be broken so that they can be recreated. So in light of the resurrection, let's uh, stand and let's worship the one who is the resurrection, and the life, thinking not just inwardly in communion, but outwardly in his call to uh, commission us to the world.